This Christmas, for the first time, America's most exciting and legendary motion picture hero comes to the screen like you've never seen him before. The Bat! In an all-new, larger-than-life feature film. Now, the Dark Knight confronts his newest and most menacing villain. Your angel of death awaits. The Phantasm. I want you. And faces his greatest danger. Can't be too careful with all those weirdos around. A soaring new adventure. Batman. Mask of the Phantasm. The animated movie. Coming for a Christmas you'll never forget. Welcome to Two True Freaks. This is our special sort of Halloween tie-in type deal. We are going to do a movie, uh, basically a movie review, sort of Halloweenish tie-in. And uh, well, first let's uh, introduce the players here. I am Scott Gardner, and joining me is my co-host and best friend Chris Honeywell. Howdy. And also joining us is Chris Johnson, our good buddy and co-host of the Quantum Blunderbuss podcast that you can find at www.quantumblunderbuss, all one word, .com. Hey, everybody. All right. And we are going to talk about tonight my favorite Batman film. The only one that I feel has ever really done this character justice, and that is Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, the animated movie. Now, I have quite the story on how I discovered this movie, but first I want to go around. I want to hear from you, fellas. How how did you discover this movie? How did you first see it? The the whole nine yards. So we'll, uh, we'll start with our guest first. We'll start with Chris Johnson. Well, I actually saw this in the theaters when it originally came out but I was really young at the time so I really don't have any memories of going to see it except for the fact that I thought that the costume design of the Phantasm was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life Um, and after that I watched it all the time on video just always you know running it from Blockbuster or what have you watch it all the time and you know I haven't seen it in a while and I, you know, I bought the DVD, but I haven't watched it in a while. And you know, just watching it again in preparation for this episode, I pretty much remembered all the scenes and all the bits of dialogue because I had just watched it so many times. And uh, it's, you know, like Scott, it's my favorite Batman movie. 
uh, my favorite comic book movie and one of my favorite movies ever, period. So Chris? you guys are pretty aligned on that. Oh, yeah. I, actually, yeah, you yeah, blew me away because uh, I'll just say I, I thought that I was going to be the only one that had actually seen this in the theater because I've actually never known anybody else who actually caught it when it was in the theater, but uh, I'll get into that. Yeah, you guys are lucky. I, You know how I saw it? You showed it to me on VHS. Oh, really? When we lived together on Monroe Avenue, you... Yeah, you oh, were. wow. <laughs> I remember you. Bat no, Lips. that can't that can't be because I when I first saw this, I had literally just moved to Georgia. Maybe then, maybe you. It was definitely on your recommendations that I saw it. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe I saw it like just after. Maybe I talked to you and you said, "Look, you got to watch the Mask of the Phantasm." But I saw it on VHS. I remember that. I could have sworn I watched it with you, but I remember. Really, really being surprised by it at how um, how adult and sophisticated it was, especially when you compared it to every other Batman movie that's been yes. made actually before and since that. You know, it is it's the most true to the comic book, while at the same time covering some very it's some very sort of adult themes and situations without being lurid about it it's a very well written and well I, I was just very surprised because at the time the the Batman cartoon was on TV there was a Batman cartoon on TV and you know I would get back from work and everybody in my house would be watching cartoons so I'd catch bits and pieces of it and I liked it but uh, this was just heads and, heads and shoulders above that while at the same time still sort of remaining true to the sort of feel of it. And I was and I didn't remember a lot about it till I rewatched it and and uh you know I sort of re-experienced that same thing over again watching it again, you know. It's a pretty sophisticated movie and it had the you know it had the music and it's it had the feel of an official Batman movie too. I think if uh it would have come out say today it might have uh, done a lot better. You know, it might have gotten more attention. I think back then people were thinking it was just sort of like... I remember when it came out in the theaters thinking, ah, it's just sort of going to be an hour and a half version of the cartoon for TV, and I thought that was kind of lazy, you know. I was like, well, they're making a TV show, you know. It probably cost them nothing to make the movie. But the movie is very nicely animated also. It's in that oh, yeah. sort of super, you know, old Superman style... Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I definitely. I, I can't feel remember the, the name of the, the Fleischer. Fleischer, that's right. It has. Mm-hmm. It, it very much has that Fleischer feel to it, where there's a flatness to it, but at the same time, it's very well shaded. And also on very the nice. point about the release, I think it was originally supposed to be released direct to video, and then the studio went, "Oh, we're going to put this in the theater." Right. So it kind of you know snuck up on the producers because they right. thought they were going to just do direct to video. And at the last minute, they wanted to, you know, release in the theater, which I kind of think hurt the release of it by having that switch. You know, it's so close to how they were originally going to do it, and they probably didn't give it enough lead time to probably build an audience, which is unfortunate. Well, I'll tell you, I was uh, I was working in video at the time when it came out on video, and well, let me let me back up, and I'm, I'm itching to tell my story on this because I had literally just done the whole you know one day at a time thing where i you know i threw my shit in a, in a little car 
and I, I drove to Georgia basically with the clothes on my back, and I basically was starting a whole new life. And I lived for a very short time with my aunt and uncle that already lived here, and I was getting to really know my my cousins for the first time. You know, my aunt and uncle's kids. And we're roughly about the same age and everything. Some of them are a little bit younger than me. And we were basically, one weekend we decided to go to the movies and we're trying to find something to watch. So it was kind of like a particularly slow movie weekend that we went. And I'm trying to remember exactly what time of year it was. If it was when it originally released, I think it was like near Christmas. That's what I was thinking too, is that it was right around Christmas time. So I had literally been in Georgia maybe a month and a half at most. So we were, you know, we just we went to the local theater and and we're just kind of looking for something that everybody would agree on. And I remember I was actually the one that didn't really want to go see it because I had blown off Batman the Animated Series. I think I watched one episode. I couldn't tell you which one it was, but it was like one of the like super lame episodes. For shame, and, Scott. Oh, well, I know. Today I feel <laughs> horrible about it because I am a major. This this movie was my gateway into the DC animated universe and I, I believe me every time I sit and watch this movie and I've watched this movie a billion times but every time I watch it I thank the gods of happenstance that my cousins talked me into going to this movie because I really had zero interest to see it you know I'd, I'd seen that one episode I really blew the show off not understanding what it really was I thought it was an extension of the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film because you know it, it reused some of the music and stuff like that, and it had something, at least the episode, whatever episode it was that I watched, it just really gave me the impression that it was some sort of animated series based solely on that one film. And so I just wasn't interested. I mean, I don't want to spoil too much on my opinions of the Burton film, because I really do plan for us to do an episode like this, talking about that film and re-examining it. But anyway, you know, I was less than impressed. I'll just spill that much. So I I just, you know, I I had no exposure whatsoever. So going into this movie, it completely blew me away how, for one thing, the sound, you know, the, the just the great surround sound utilized in this movie. I mean, I'd never really been that impressed by an animated feature before, you know, as, as much as I love animation nothing had ever grabbed me that way with the with the awesome use of surround sound and real special effects or, or rather sound effects and things like that i've always always been a huge shirley walker fan so this is like her masterpiece score it's beautiful mm-hmm. and I, I really enjoyed that and so i mean i going in pretty much blind but with almost you know really a little bit of a prejudice and and getting what i got which was like the definitive batman you know the batman that i loved from like the 80s comics you know like to me this is almost like the gene colin batman of like the you know when he was working on i think he was actually working on both batman and detective back and forth for a while but there was a great story where he was a fugitive from the law for a while and it was actually hunted in Gotham City. I can't remember why. But the sequence in the in this film where he's again hunted by the law and on the wrong side of the law and you know basically you know wanted for a for a murder he didn't commit kind of thing really struck a chord with me because it was such a callback to to my Batman and 
man, it, I just, I can't properly even put it into words how much I really love and appreciate this movie. And also, I've never, ever, ever been a fan of the obligatory love story. It seems like every goddamn superhero movie we get, whether it's <laughs> whether it's Superman or whether it's The Punisher or Watchmen or no matter what genre of superhero it is, we always get the obligatory girlfriend romance. Yeah, they want to get the token hot actress in there. They want to get right. the, a, a certain amount of women into the seats too. Right, but I mean, other than I mean, there's only a handful of them that that I think ever work. You know, Superman the movie being one of them. But this movie, not only does it work, wow, it's integral to the story. I mean, it's it's one of the things that really makes this movie click with me is that. It, it adds extra motivation for why he becomes Batman, but also I, I almost envision in a, in a way that Batman is out there in you know in the DCAU and the pain that he inflicts on the criminal underworld and everything is one part revenge, you know, for what happened to his parents upon criminals, but also one half of him. You know he's nursing a broken heart, so he just wants to go out and just kick some ass because he's wanting to share his pain with the world. You know what I mean? And I love that angle. I think that's great. I think that's a, a very, if you'll forgive the expression, I think that's very realistic. I think that's a realistic motivation that any guy who's ever nursed a broken heart had that urge to want to just fucking punch something. You know, and I can see that with this movie, with with that Batman, that you know he's very much out there. You know, if if I gotta be hurting, everybody's gonna be hurting. <laughs> so he's yeah. putting the smackdown on everybody. You know. Well, that's that's one of my notes was also that this had gorgeous sound design in it. You know the the music and uh, you know it wasn't just background music right. placed on it. It was scored music. I love, and this is why it's such a great one of the reasons why this is a good Halloween one. Lot whenever the phantasm showed up, out came a theremin. Has yes. spooky theremin music, and you know, through the graveyard with the fog, it's classic. It it almost gave it a little bit of Scooby Doo in a positive way. Yeah, you know, the that 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 sort of spooky, cartoony angle to it, and uh, that was, yeah, that was one of the things I really enjoyed, and I liked um, I liked how they worked the Batmobile and his origin into this too, without making yes. it. Uh, completely, mm-hmm. you know. Okay, here's the obligatory origin story. Everything that was put in it was was put into it to advance the plot, and well, uh, not just yeah, to be. Oh, here's a cool scene with the Batmobile, or you know, we have to tell his origin because we have to. You know, you have to know the origin. Well, I remember when they did something like very similar to that. Um, with uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, where they basically in the beginning of that movie with you know with uh, River Phoenix, right, wanted to give you like, okay, that we get the origin of the hat, the origin of the scar, the origin of the whip, the origin of the jacket, and snakes I as, and who and snakes, yeah, his fear of snakes, and as cool as all that is, and I really enjoy that movie. I'm not knocking it. I never felt that any of that was organic. That it all felt like, wow, in the course of 15 minutes, his entire identity was set when he was like 12 years old, right? right? It just Mm -hmm. never felt natural. Whereas in this movie, 
wow, you know, like you say, he he sees that car at the world. Uh, is it World's Fair or Gotham Fair? I'm not sure, but it could be the Gotham World, Gotham's World, Gotham Fair, World's so. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, it was very organic. It really felt very natural that you know, wow, this was his inspiration. You know, he saw that that car of the future and was like, I'm going to own that car one day. You know, and then that car becomes the first Batmobile. I thought that was that was great. And I've always really enjoyed that World's Fair sequence because um, I, I secretly suspect, I, I've never seen any confirmation on this or anything, but I suspect at least somebody that worked on Batman the Animated Series was a serious Disney fan. Because in this, I mean, the the thing with the with the fair in this is very clearly a callback to the 1964-65 World's Fair in New York City, where uh, you know Disney had all these these uh, things that they premiered. One of which was the Carousel of Progress, and the thing that the the little hideout that the Joker has right. later on is the, it is the damn Carousel of, Pro- of Progress. It's the same thing, just adapted in this the song. Um, that the big robot statue sing is basically taking It's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, which was the theme song of the Carousel of Progress, tweaking it and changing the words a little bit. But it's, you know, at the end of this, I'll play the both of them, a snippet of both of them, and you can tell it's the same thing. They just... So it's like an homage. I mean, it's not a ripoff. It it was just a beautiful homage. And then later on, way later in the uh, Batman animated series, there's an entire episode with this guy, I can't remember what his name was now, where he basically hires Mr. Freeze because he wants to learn how Mr. Freeze works and duplicate the accident that happened to Freeze and basically become another Mr. Freeze because Mr. Freeze is immortal. Well, the guy was like an amusement park mogul that was making a very like Epcot type futuristic Uh world and he was going to freeze the entire rest of the world and basically start his own utopia from this theme park that he had built well cut to the chase and at the end of the episode he ends up immortal frozen in a block of ice which you know ties to that disney legend that you know walt's out there somewhere frozen in a block of ice. so i love that you know that that Hmm. You know, as little asides to, you know, somebody clearly had a Disney thing going on with Batman, the animated series. So I thought that was great. I don't know. Is that too far off topic? No, this? no, <laughs> not at all. What is on this show? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, you know, we had uh, you'd mentioned the score and uh, I just want to throw it out there and people are. You know, have probably heard me plug this before, and are going to start to think that I'm getting like a kickback or something. I swear it's not the truth, but I just want to plug that the complete score to this movie finally got released by La La Land Records. I know it was a limited release, so I'm not sure if it's sold out yet or not. But uh, if it's you still could, in pos- stock. is it? Oh, cool. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I would. I, have you got a copy of it? Did you get it? Uh, no, I haven't. Not yet. It's, but it's fan. Fantastic. It is so worth the money. It's really, really, really good. Because th- there was a bootleg that circulated for a lot of years that was called the complete score, but it actually is missing some tracks. It did not have the song, which La La Land did put the song on there. You know, the the World's Fair song. I forget what it's right. called. It's like Welcome to the Future or something like that. And the sound quality 
is crystal clear, which is something, you know, the bootleg was, it was very clearly a bootleg. It sounded like it was off like mixtapes or something. So it was kind of muddy, but mm-hmm. man, the, the La La Land release is just great. It comes with a book and the whole nine yards, which was really good. And, uh, well, like I say, this was, this was my gateway into, you know, Batman, the animated series, and then later Superman and justice league and all that. And right after I saw this movie, I tracked down a book that came out. I think the author is Les Daniels, but I could be wrong. But it was I think it's just simply called Batman the Animated Series. And it's beautiful. It's it's this huge oversized like coffee table book with all this like beautiful matte paintings and art and and you know the history of the show, a little bit of history of Batman and comics and whole great big huge section on all of the toys and promotional material and tie-ins and stuff to the animated show and I, I mention it only because it's years out of print but you can buy that thing off of eBay for a song I mean because I, I forget how much a, their book was originally I want to say it was 40-50 bucks originally and I think I bought it for like $3 probably shipping included so I mean it's out there to be had on the cheap but it's, oh, it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful book. There's a lot of, like, between the chapters, they'll have, like, a two-page spread that will be, like, um, I don't know what you call it, but it's, like, the background art in, like, you know, like, they'll put the, they'll have the art there, and then they'll have, you know, they'll put the cell and photograph it, you know, like Batman throwing a punch, and they'll photograph that cell, and then right. they'll change the cell. Well, these these two-page spreads between the chapters are simply that background art. So it could be a picture of, like, Gotham City or, I don't know, uh, maybe the Batcave. Or, it's been a while since I've thumbed through it, so I can't remember what all the pictures are. But it's really, I mean, it's so beautiful. The, the art on that show was, was very trend-setting and all. And it was something, you know, they carried over to the movie, which was they actually took black paper and drew the show on this black paper which was unheard of you know nobody had ever gone yeah, you into- usually start from white right and they, and they were doing it exactly opposite because they wanted it to be dark and noirish and all that so that that adds to that that whole feel you know that that like re- uh, what do they call it like the retro it's retro, but it's retro, like postmodern retro. Or so, there's a term for it that I'm blanking <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, you know, but, but it's like you know, it, it's that retro. It feels like the 30s, yet they have computers and and right. some stuff. Some stuff is futuristic, yet it, it, so it gives it like a timeless uh, feel. Neo retro, maybe. Neo, yeah, maybe that was it. Some, something to that effect. They have televisions, but you always see them in black and white. Art Deco, that's what I'm going... Um, yeah, it's it's retro Art Deco because it has that... Yeah. yeah, like you say, like black and white TVs, but they also have computers, but they also have, like, flying machines. It's, it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it really... But that all that stuff was on purpose so that it gave it, you know, the show a timeless feel so that you could watch it 20 years later... Right. And it wouldn't it wouldn't feel awkward or dated or you know it would still have a, a perfectly t- you know kind of like a Disney movie. Yeah, like, there's not like, like a kid on a skateboard who's like, "Hey, Batman, rad!" Right. <laughs> yeah. And and you know if you ever watch any of the DCAU stuff on DVD and listen to the commentaries, 
you know, those guys cringe whenever they broke form and threw in a topical reference because there's one episode I can't remember the name of it. I think it's Joker's Millions or something like that where the Joker inherits money and hires Johnny Cochran to clear his record and there's a there's a reference in there something like, you know, if that if man's man, filled with glee, that man must go free. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And and those guys, you know, they laugh but they also cringe. They're like, you know, I really wish we hadn't done that because, you know, like I think they even say at the time, you know, like 20 years from now, people are going to go, what, what the hell's that? You know, they're not going to get it. So they, they, they purposely tried to stay away from that sort of thing. And, you know, I don't know if the later series like justice league or what will be as timeless, but man, this Batman show by and large really is timeless. You know, you, you don't watch it and feel like, you know, it doesn't feel like a like a '90s show or or whatever. It feels pretty modern. You know, pretty pretty. Uh, you know, timeless. Yeah, I like that. And I, I think the movie definitely has that that same feel to it, where where it just. What I find funny up. is I think Burton tried to do that with the movie, and it didn't work. Because <laughs> well, now I mean, watching the Burton movie, it feels dated. If it, it has that late '80s feel to it maybe it's the prince music i don't know but well i mean you know despite my personal feelings about that movie you know you, you gotta give a huge nod to tim burton because if it wasn't oh yeah him, you know none of this would have ever happened oh yeah you know, i actually series would have never happened i actually like those first two batman movies in their own way i like elements you know the the look of gotham city that we get in in Batman the animated series, I think owes very oh, much sure. to to that show or to excuse and, me to that movie and the music and and the, and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Shirley Walker was the I can't remember what the term is called. Like Danny Elfman wrote the score, uh-huh. but she actually performed it. You know, oh, conduct, okay. conducted because she was. Damn it! There's a word, and I'm blanking on what the word is, but there, there's. There, there's a lot of people in the film music world or TV or whatever where they compose, but when when the music actually is made, is scored some, up and everything. Score, yeah, someone else actually performs it. You know, does the the wand waving or whatever the hell you call it, and she was the one that that filled that role for Danny Elfman. You know, I don't know if she did every one of his scores, but she did, you know, the the huge ones in the beginning of his career like Batman 89. And so, you know, she was really the the logical person to do something like Batman the animated series and Batman the animated movie because she was very familiar with the material. But what I right. love about it, it's it's funny because my initial reaction when I bought cuz immediately when it came out after I saw this movie and fell in love with it in the theater, as soon as the soundtrack came out, I was working at a place, uh, it was my first job in Georgia, it was called Turtle Super Video. And we sold you know, music and stuff there too. And the day the soundtrack came out, I snagged it and got a great discount on it. And I took it home and I listened to it. And I gotta be honest, I was horribly disappointed in it. Because other than the fight scene between Batman and the Phantasm that eventually leads into the you know the the construction site and all that which is my favorite portion of the whole movie other than that I was disappointed in the soundtrack because for one so many cues weren't there but also 
in the fact that it didn't use the main theme but once or twice right and and over the years i've completely flip-flopped on that i think it's now awesome that she didn't go for the obvious you know like say like an indiana jones score Right, where you have particularly the like theme. the first two, exactly. You know, like you're constantly hearing, like in Raiders and in Temple of Doom, you're constantly hearing dun, 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 whenever he does something heroic. And that's why in the third movie, he purposely toned it down because he figured people were sick of it by that point. And so Shirley Walker did something very similar with this movie where you actually hear very little of the Batman theme that would like kick off the show, for example, you know, the Burton theme based, basically the theme to the Burton movie, you know, the, the Danny Elfman. Theme. Yeah. There's really not much of it. There's, there's a couple significant instances and most of the rest of this is truly an original score. That's brilliant. And it's very hard to do because you, you've already got something that's established that people expect to hear and you're deviating for, for whatever reason and that can colossally fail sometimes. I mean, just look at like Star Trek Generations. People expected the Star Trek theme and got something completely different. And most people hate that score yeah. so, and because of that. So, well, and I, I'm I feel like I'm just wired tonight. Well, I think we're about <laughs> yeah. ready to take a little break, catch your breath, maybe, and uh, come back and just pick up where we left off. Awesome. All right, we'll be right back. There appears to be some chemical residue on the lawn. Could match the traces I found on the glass. Not much, but it's been that kind of day. Mom, but the whole world's going to seed. <gasps> you. Bruce? All right, we're back with more Mask of the Phantasm. And I'm here with Scott Gardner, my co-host, and Chris Johnson, Hi. our guest. And hey. I think... <laughs> <laughs> and we, yeah, we just had a very goofy break where, uh, where we basically muzzled Scott for a couple minutes to see until he can chew through it. He's like the gimp in, in Pulp Fiction right now. So, uh... One of the things that I love about this movie, and this was something that I got a nibble of in the newest the the newest Batman movie that that we shall not name its title, but uh, Batman as the detective, you know, I mean he was Batman comics were detective comics, and right. this, you get to see Batman as a detective, you know, you get to see him as a tortured soul too, but that's sort of on the side in. And and in this one, he actually even has a sense of humor. You know, he's he's more of a um, 
fully formed human being. You know, he's not all seething Batmanness. You know, there's and uh, it, it's not all just riding around in the Batmobile and using cool toys and beating the hell out of people and having dark conversations. There's detective work involved. There's there's using you know his his brain to solve a mystery and to get him you know to to figure stuff out, which I think has been sorely lacking in all the Batman movies. There was yes. there was a little bit of it in the the most recent one. They started to have one that one subplot of of him tracking someone down but it just sort of it just sort of plays itself out in the beginning and then it's done and i i think that's almost batman's primary job you know is to be a detective right he's 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 not just a thug vigilante he's he's almost like a cop he's like a criminal investigator who goes out there and he's rich so he's got all these um cool toys at his disposal to help him you know find out what's going on but it all comes down to finding clues and using your brain in the end yeah that's pretty much at the very beginning when he sees the residue on the glass yes after the phantasm first appears and he you know takes it back to the back cave to analyze so you know like in the very opening scene he's already you know doing detective work and you know, I, I know Scott's going to hate me for this, but the only other Batman that really had big elements of that was the TV show. It, I'll bet it ridiculous, you know, his line of logic he would use to figure out a clue would be ridiculous. But he was. He was figuring out figuring out clues. And, you know, I, I even think the, the voice actor who plays Batman in this has has a little bit of Adam West in him. You know, there's a little bit oh, of yeah. Adam West in his delivery, and that's that's kind of cool. You know, it's it's integrating all those Batman elements together without oh, no, I... overdoing it, making it just some sort of weird conglomeration tribute thing. No, I I, I don't uh, I, I don't you know have any bad feelings about you saying that because while I'm not a fan of, of the Adam West show, there were elements of that show that I do feel did get the character right. And one of those, as you say, is the detective element because, you know, Batman, you know, a, a lot of writers complain about Superman and how hard it is to write Superman. I think, although you don't hear it very much, I think a lot of them, I don't know that they necessarily struggle with Batman, but I think a lot of them mishandle I guess might be the word to use with Batman because to me the Batman that works best is the detective slash special status policeman Batman. Right, right. You know, to where where he's basically Gotham, you know, Commissioner Gordon gets a case, his people either don't know what to do with it or they're just not not a you know, they're not equipped to handle it. So he calls in the Batman, who right. you know, not only is he smarter, cleverer, he's got better toys, he's better equipped, but he's also able to do things that, that Gordon can't sanction his guys to do, like go and breaking it and breaking and entering and right. beating the piss out right. of somebody. Batman doesn't doesn't use search warrants. But exactly. here's the thing about Batman though, <laughs> that 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 puts him aside from the Punisher or something like that is he's ethic he's Commissioner Gordon knows he can utilize Batman because he knows he's trustworthy. He right. knows it's somebody who is probably more ethical and trustworthy than his own cops. 
you know, Batman's not going to be on the take to some, you know, crime under warlord or anything like that, you know, or, you know, swiping, swiping cash from the Crook City bus and stuff like that. So he's just, you know, I mean, whether he could, you know, he probably can't really exist in real life, but yeah, his status is as such because he's so, he's so trustworthy and honest while at the same time having a, an integrated dark side to him that, yeah, he becomes this sort of... It's almost a wish-fulfilling character for a, a policeman, you know? Mm-hmm. So, someone who can go out and do their job without the constraints they have, who will also not abuse his power. Well, I, I think that beyond, like, the couple of the crooked cops, I think that they need to check the police academy in Gotham because of how many times Commissioner Gordon does have to call Batman in. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I've always thought that beyond beyond just this show and this in this film that, you know, even uh, Batman comics... Batman, somebody you know. stole my kid's bike after him. <laughs> I'd send my boys, but, you know, he might be armed. Right. And, stick, you know, can't send him in. When the budget when the budget comes in, they're like, "How much money are we spending on the goddamn lights for that that, yeah, that, the that projector?" The yeah, signal. yeah, this thing's killing us, man. We have to get those lights made special. Don't you realize that they don't make those anymore? Uh, cut the donut budget. <laughs> Outsource it to the bat signal budget. That's one thing that I, I really really appreciate in this movie. That's such a subtle thing, is that Gordon supports Batman through the entire movie. He doesn't ever turn on him. Even when the preponderance of evidence is against Batman, Gordon still believes in him, and he even swears off the manhunt. What do you mean you won't? You have to go after him! He didn't do it. It's garbage, Mr. Reeves. The Batman does not kill. Period. You want him, you get him. I'll have no part of it. I love that. That's one of my favorite scenes because it shows that he really knows Batman, really trusts Batman and believes in him and, and really doesn't want to think that, you know, he, he may have turned or something. I, I think that's great, you know, that, that he shows, even without Batman ever coming to him and saying, you know, Jim, you know, this is a frame job or whatever, you know, which could Batman have happened. never, I mean, yeah, he never really asserts his innocence in this. He, he He's like, oh, you know, they think it's me, but he never tries to prove himself innocent. I noticed mm-hmm. in this. Yeah. At the same rate, though, now that you say that, I wonder how he eventually does go about clearing himself because that's one of my major hang-ups with Batman Returns, you know, the, the live-action sequel to Batman 89, is that in that movie, Batman, if you, if you think through the logic of that movie, Batman's completely screwed at the end of that movie as far as his image goes. There's, there's nobody left that can clear him. And I wonder... You know, now that you bring that up, at the end of this movie, what's to clear him? Who who knows about the, tru- the truth of the phantasm and 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 can well, basically go, oh well that wasn't Batman. That's what well, I, I like about this movie is it was left open ended like that. You know, he didn't he didn't he didn't prove himself innocent. He found out who the phantasm was, but he didn't bring her to justice, and you know she just sort of disappeared into the fog with the with the Joker and right you know it was all left open it was left it didn't try to tie everything up cleanly it told its story and the story didn't end cleanly which is 
more intense than any of the other Batman movies. I think with Reeves, you know, going crazy and everything, I think that they that the whole manhunt probably died down without him really throwing the support behind it. And also the police almost, you know, blowing up a construction site too. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Dana Delaney mm-hmm. as uh, as uh, Andrea Beaumont. She really pulls this movie together for me. She was really the the first time I watched this was the thing that stood out to me that that really pulled the story together and and really makes this movie work so well. I mean, she's a fantastic actress, and in all we get in this, you know, of her is her voice. But you know that 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 beautiful melding of of her voice acting and just the 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 great way this movie is animated. I mean, she is such a real character to me. I mean, she really comes off as a genuine person, and I really like the way she works. You know, the, the the chemistry she's got with with Bruce Wayne and everything, and and you know, eventually, you know that that there's not a whole lot of needless drama and needless buildup or anything. I mean, she knows he's Batman, you know, right yeah. from from when she sees him at, at in the graveyard, you know, in the cemetery. You know, she instantly realizes, oh well that you know that's who it is. Now he may have even been sharing with her the plan. There's there's actually a hint of that in the flashback sequences when he proposes to her. And she right. says, you know, well, you know, I, I, you know, I wasn't part of the plan. And he says, well, I'm changing the plan. So it always kind of made me think maybe he'd actually told her, you know, what, what the plan was, was that, you know, he, he had sworn, you know, the oath to go out and, you know, avenge his parents and all that. And so, you know, she, you know, it was a, maybe it was more of a simple two plus two than, than, you know, it initially seems, I'm not sure. But man, That's possible. Yeah, I liked that character so much, and you know, I'm not usually the kind of guy who who likes, you know, when when the movies take great liberties with you know with the comic book material, especially with origin stories. But this one here, I felt almost like you know, after I saw this, I almost felt like, wow, you know, I never knew what was missing till now you know but this was like that that missing puzzle piece that clicked into place you know between the death of bruce's parents and you know i shall become a bat this was like that missing link in the story that that just solidified the whole thing for me and and really cements batman as a as an awesome character was this relationship you know this failed relationship with her you know this this pain that he was always going to have to live with and everything i i i don't know there's something What's the word? You know, it's, it's like a, it's like a tragic, you know, like a Greek tragedy almost. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is that too? I think that on the point of the the character and the origin. I mean, we don't. There's not a whole lot of, you know, Batman's origin that's like definitively laid out besides the basics. You know, like the whole most of his life before he actually became Batman isn't really set in stone. So there's wiggle room. That, that's yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, there's, you know, I think there's a place in there for him to have this serious love interest, which also factors in, you know, to his life when he is Bruce Wayne and Batman 
because when he's Bruce Wayne, he only has these casual flings. He doesn't have any real relationships. And the idea of this, you know, failed romance with Andrea and, you know, basically being put on the path to stick to the plan kind of adds credence to the short flings he has instead of actual relationships. Right. Yeah, that, that was my take as well, that I thought it was beautiful that, you know, our, our original idea, you know, our original uh, guess at why he does have the, the short flings would be that it's it's cover, you know, for his secret identity. But I like that it, it, you could actually take it both ways, that it is, you know, truly cover for his secret identity, but also, you know, as we see in this, that it also could be that he just doesn't want anybody else. You know, he, he's had his heart broken. She's his one true love kind of thing. And while he'll fool around, it's kind of like James Bond, you know, like James Bond after, you know, if you're going by like original movie continuity before they rebooted it with, with Casino Royale, you know, he, uh, he lost his wife in, um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and after that, never was serious about another woman again. You know, he screwed plenty of women, but he never mm-hmm. ever got serious. He never allowed himself, you know, to, to get serious. Because I remember uh, one of my favorite moments with Bond was uh, License to Kill, when his best friend gets married and and he's tossed the the book or what is it, the garter, and he's just like, you know, no, thank you. And, and, and Felix's wife is like, you know, did I do something wrong? And he just says, well, you know, he was married once and, you know, it was a long time ago. And so, you know, he's, you could tell in that moment that Bond was still nursing that, that pain, you know, that, that was something that was never, he never, was never really going to recover from. I like, you know, I feel the same way after seeing this movie with Batman, that it was, it was an added bit of motivation for the character I think you know that 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 pain was driving him right along with the the pain of the of the loss of his parents which was one of those things that I always thought was really interesting about the character but at the same rate I always kind of had a a little bit of a of a twinge of Jesus dude you know get over, get over it, it. <laughs> as harsh as that sounds you know I mean I wonder how many other fans over the years may have had a twinge of that too, of feeling like Jesus, you know, you'd think eventually that pain, maybe not get over it, but that that pain would dull to where it wouldn't be enough of a motivator anymore to devote your entire existence to this, that eventually a day would come where you'd be like, well, where it would become an excuse more than a motivator or, or that you would burn out on it. You know, that, you know, yes, I loved my parents, but geez, that was 30 years ago. I got to let this go and have a life. Whereas this is that extra motivator to keep him going that, you know, that he had his shot at his normal life and now it was gone. And what was left, you know, what, what did he have? You know, all that was left was to continue the war because there was nothing else. I love that. It's tragic. And I feel horrible for this character because of that, but it's also an excellent motivator. It's, it's almost like the Punisher. It's it's very similar to the Punisher because what does the Punisher have? Nothing. His entire family's been killed, so he doesn't care anymore what happens to him. Now, Batman is not that reckless. Yeah, exactly. Because Batman, I I believe he does care if he lives or dies. Whereas I honestly think the Punisher doesn't care. If the Punisher 
dies in his war. He, I think he's he's chalked it up to that's a foregone conclusion. Eventually, yeah, I think he might even yeah. might even be a death wish of some sort, exactly. just like the movie Death Wish. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, I think that's ultimately beyond just the simple fact that the Punisher kills freely and, and Batman won't kill unless he has to. I think that's the extra difference between them is that, you know, one one very much cares to continue living because he has a war to continue fighting, whereas the other one's like, I'm going to take as many of the sons of bitches with me as I can before I get killed in the fight. I don't know how I got there, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, we were talking about Batman motivations. Right. Yep. The other actors. Well, Mark some, Hamill. Has, Mark you got to yes. take your hat yes. off to Mark <laughs> Hamill in this one. Jeez. Absolutely. You know, in the long run, I'm really glad I discovered Batman the Animated Series the way I did. Because watching this movie, you know, of course brought me in and made me want to watch the series and then going back in the series and, and discovering, you know, how great both Mark Hamill and, and Kevin Conroy are in that is, is awesome. But yeah, Mark Hamill. Cause you know, again, I, I hadn't had any experience with the one episode I'd seen didn't have Mark Hamill. I want to say it might've been a penguin episode, which is maybe why I thought it was, it was tied into the Burton films because the, the penguin in the original Batman animated series before they, they did that slight tweak where they changed all the character models, that penguin was based on the penguin from Batman Returns where he had like flippers for hands and stuff. Yeah, very much so. I so. think that's yeah. why I thought it was an extension of those movies. Now, now that I think about that, I think that's what, why I just kind of wrote it off. But, you know, I saw Mark Hamill's name on the poster walking into the theater and thought, oh, Mark Hamill. And it took me a while watching the movie to realize which character he was. And when I when it hit me who he was, I was like, oh, my, that's awesome. And I think the only way I caught it was because he had been the trickster on the flash right. and did the same similar thing with his voice. Right, right. You know? And that was great. Yeah, he he's, he's awesome. Awesome as the Joker. And the only performance... Of him doing the Joker that I like better than this movie is uh, is when he was the Joker in um, Return of the Joker, the flashback sequence, right? Where it's basically the final fight between Batman and the Joker, and it was just wow. I mean, he's so dark, really. Yeah, because really they dark. could really cut loose on that one. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Although they do cut loose, they do cut loose pretty well with this one compared to at least what they could get away with on TV because you've got, you know, when people get punched, there's blood. You know, it's not yeah. just like oh, punch, flash. You know, there's actually blood. There's lost teeth. You know, that you've got guns blazing all over the place. That was uh, yeah. I, Chris mentioned that when we started the episode, and that was something that I wanted to touch on too. Was uh, you know, Chris said the words adult themes. And I think that's perfect because I remember walking away from this movie, and that was one of the things that really impressed me. Was wow, you know, I walked out going, wow, that's not a movie for kids. You know, I mean, to an extent. I mean, I think a, a kid could watch it. You know, with I think this was rated what PG or PG thirteen? Was it thirteen or was it just straight PG? It was PG. Okay. So, yeah, I walked out feeling that, you know, yeah, you know, a little bit, you know, you definitely want, you didn't want to just throw the kids in front of the tube and let them watch it. You know what I mean? I, yeah. I, very much that it was, 
what PG is, you know, parental guidance, which, you know, a lot of people today take that as, oh, that's, you know, that's a kiddie movie, you know. But I, I walked out thinking, wow, because yeah, I remember when this came out on video and, and I was working in video and a lot of times if it was parents, you know, buying it and, and the child that was with them was, was young, you know, under, I don't know, you know, seven or eight years old, you know, that age or younger. A lot of times I, I might say something to them that, you know, you know, this, this movie's a little rough and, you know, I, cause I really did feel that way that it was, uh, like you say, it had the blood, had a lot of gunplay. It didn't pull punches. I mean, it, it was, it, there was a lot of parts of it that were really kind of violent and that impressed the hell out of me seeing it in the theater. You know, that was another thing that really won me over was, wow, you know, this wasn't super friends, Batman, you know, right. This, this wasn't the, the old, uh, filmation series with, with Batmite or something, you know, this was a Batman that was kicking some ass, you know, and, and getting shot and blown up. And I love the part when he's in the construction site and, uh, and the, the, uh, acetylene tank gets hit mm-hmm. and, you know, he's, he's really hurt bad. He's torn up. Yeah, he is, you know, bleeding out his ears and his nose and he's really a mess. And I, I loved that sequence, but that was one of the things, you know, I'd always point out to parents that, you know, you know, Batman, uh, you know, he goes through the ringer in this movie and, you know, there's, there's, there's the blood in the whole nine yards. So, you know, if, if, if little Tommy here is the sensitive child, then, you know, you might want to steer clear of this, you know, go with Scooby-Doo meets Batman or something that's <laughs> kid friendly, you know, also, uh, are we going to cover Scooby-Doo meets Batman someday? I would love to, because you know what? That was on not long ago. We were flipping channels one night, watching TV uh, at dinner time, and uh, and just happened to, it was the part where the house was flipping. I said, turn back, turn back, and we went back to it, and it was that episode of, uh, of Scooby-Doo meets Batman and Robin. And it was the one with the with the house that would flip, remember? it would like Because they'd come back to it and be uh-huh. like, Sheriff, I swear there was a house here. And the sheriff's like, yeah, you fucking crazy kids smoking your pot or whatever. Uh-huh. It was a great episode. And I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, you know. So I watched it and was just eating the shit up, you know. It's great. But uh, Okay, I, now, 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 I want to do that. now I want a Scooby-Doo cartoon where somebody actually calls out Shaggy on his pot use. <laughs> <laughs> they almost did in the movies, you know. Yeah. They yeah. referenced it, I think, in the second movie or something like that. But yeah, you know what? We ought to because uh, you know I was I was going to invite Chris back to to talk about Return of the Joker because I I know that he loves that movie too. I definitely at some point I do want to do the live action films. You know the 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 Burton um, Burton and what's the later guy's name um, Nolan or Schumacher uh, Schumacher. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I'll, at some at some point down the road, but definitely uh, the next one I, I was planning to do was uh, was Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker. But now that I think about it, I'd love to step back and do uh, Scooby Doo meet Batman and Robin because it's it's great. I mean it's it's not goofy like you think it would be. You know, I mean, well, I, well Bat- it is a little, but I I was well, a big no, I mean, Scooby Doo fan, and that was oh, just thank you, boy, over the top awesomeness when yeah, I was a but kid. I, but I mean, it's, you know, a lot of times those type of things, those mashups, you, you would think, you know, I'll give you the perfect, perfect example. Scooby-Doo the- meets Phyllis Diller? <laughs> oh, God. No, did you ever see 
the Flintstones meet the Jetsons. No, but I bet you that was awkward. It sucked. You would think as awesome as the Flintstones were and as awesome as the Jetsons were that you put the two of them together and you'd have just one incredible movie. Yeah. And it was so lame. Once they meet, it was like... What do we do? Yeah. yeah and, and there's no story. There's The story's just totally lame. And so, you know, Scooby-Doo and Batman could have been the same type of thing. You know, that once they meet, it's like, all right, now what do they do? But they, they worked it to where... Scooby-Doo and his cast of characters feel very, very real to their world, and Batman and Robin feel very, very real to... Really, it feels like the filmation world, and I don't think that show was made yet. I want to say that that show didn't come along for a number of years. The... the, you know the, the one I'm talking about? Batman, yeah. Yeah, you, you know the one I'm talking about, right? Yeah. They had like bat they they deal with Batmite a lot. He was yeah. almost like their Scooby Doo character in their show. Like right. they're comedy mm-hmm. they're gleek, really. But I, I wanna see that show as much later, but maybe I'm wrong. I, I really don't know that, that history of animation that well. But uh but yeah, it really worked. And that that's why I say when I, when I said it wasn't goofy, what I meant was that it, it, it was not goofy in the sense that it wasn't awkward or or stretching either universe to fit the other. It, it was a very organic fit. But yes, Batman and Robin are, are goofy compared to like this version of Batman and Robin because, you know, it was a more kiddified world, you know, at that time or whatever. But it's still excellent. Yeah, I, I would love to talk about that because it's really cool. I wanted to mention the guy that plays um, the councilman, Councilman Reeves. Uh-huh. Is, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce this guy's name. It's it's Hart Bocker, I guess, B-O-C-H-E-R. And I remember when I – I'm usually absolutely horrible at recognizing voices in animated stuff. I, I, I suck at it. My wife is great at it, but I'm, I'm terrible. But in the theater, I actually realized who this guy was. He's Ellis from Die Hard, the scumbag, you know, the, the coke snorting guy that, that's hitting on Bruce Willis's wife in the beginning of, of Die Hard. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, the sort of yuppie, sweaty yeah. guy. Sounds like he was perfect for this role then. Yes, <laughs> very much so. Have you ever seen Die Hard? Uh, yeah. He, he's the guy that, that Bruce Willis has to give up in that one part because he, he goes to try to talk to the terrorists Right. And the terrorists are like basically holding him hostage to make Bruce Willis give up, and Bruce Willis can't give up, so they end up killing the guy. That's the guy. Oh, and gotcha. If, and if you ever saw that that lackluster Supergirl movie with Helen Slater, the live action Supergirl movie, he no, was I also. Do that. Oh, okay. Well, you're, you're not missing much. Other than the fact that Helen Slater is she's smoking, smoking hot as Supergirl. Other than that, that movie's kind of kind of stupid. But. The, the villain in that movie, uh, Faye Dunaway, cast a spell on this like random innocent bystander guy who ends up falling in love with Supergirl. And again, it's this guy, <laughs> this actor. Um, also, Dick Miller is the mobster who's killed at the beginning of the movie, uh, Chucky Saul. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can, re- you know, a lot of people probably will just recognize his voice because he's such a character actor. But I just wanted to point out his, uh, he, he has at least one other um, superhero um, thing on his resume. Is he was on the Flash? A lot. He was on a number of episodes of the live-action Flash TV series. I'm trying to remember what he did. He, 
I think he shined shoes or sold newspapers or something like that. I, I forget. I used to remember what the character's name was on the show, and I forget. It's been a number of years since I watched that show, but he was in that. He was in uh, at least one episode of Next Generation and some different stuff, but you know, just a great character actor. So it was cool to, to hear his voice in this. And then uh, Abe Vigoda, man, Fish. Yeah. Fish. I love that. He's, he's really great in this, too. And uh, I'm trying to remember, there's there's a lot of little scenes in this of, you know, just wonderful direction of, like, foreboding and, and uh, like, foreshadowing. And the only one that I, I... I forgot to make a note of it, but the only one that I can remember off the top of my head that I really love is an Abe Vigoda scene where they're in the Joker's dilapidated hideout, you know, the, the Carousel of Progress set. And right toward the end of that scene, Joker's got his arm around Abe Vigoda's character and he's trying to reassure him that, you know, it's okay, you know, of course I'll help you and all that. And it's a long shot from a distance. And as they're talking and Joker's got his arm around him, the mechanical woman is using the knife and making a slashing motion that comes down right on Abe Vigoda's character. So it's like the director is subtly telling you this guy's going to get iced. You know, he's going to get axed. And it's yeah. great. And it's so, so subtle that people probably don't even catch it. But there's a lot of little moments like that. As I was rewatching it again in preparation for the show, I caught several of them. And I wish I'd made note of all of them because that one's beautiful. I love great. Like, yeah. It's really great. And I'm, I usually suck at stuff like that because it was, uh, I think it was you, Chris, that pointed out to me when Luke Skywalker is underneath the stairs in Return of the Jedi being tempted by Vader and half of his face is dark and half of his face is light. And I never caught, I mean, I, I just don't look for stuff like that. Well, but, remember which one of us went to film school. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's so true, So I'm trained to, trained to death to see stuff like that, you know, to, sometimes <laughs> to the detriment of a movie, of movie enjoyment, you know what I mean? But, right. yeah. Right. I remember another one of those scenes. It's when, um, in the flashback, when Bruce and Andrea are walking from the cemetery to her car, and I think she asks him about whatever, you know, the plan is that he's worked, and he says something, I can't remember, He something like, I think he says, so far, and he says it in the Batman voice. He doesn't yes. say it in the Bruce Wayne voice, he says it in the Batman voice. You're right. And the thing yeah. I love the most about Kevin Conroy's, you know, Batman, is just because how seamlessly he's able to switch between Batman and Bruce Wayne, the two different voices. I, I mean, I love that guy. You know, to, to me, he he just does not get... I mean, he gets a lot of credit. Don't get me wrong. It's not like he's like the unsung, you know, guy or whatever. But as much kudos as he does get, it's just still not enough. He sold that whole series. He sells that character so, so well. And uh, yeah, like you say, he he very much does like the. Uh, I'm trying to think of the actor, and I may I may give the wrong name, but is it Bud Collier? who used to do Superman on the radio way back in the day. Oh, God, I wouldn't know. I can't remember. I that may sounds have familiar. Name. It sounds familiar, but I'm not sure I've got the right name. Somebody somebody, let me know if I've got the wrong name. But way back when Superman, you know, back, um, this must have been like the late 30s, early 40s, I guess, 
you know, it was, it was strictly a radio show. So it had to build that picture in your mind. And he was brilliant at doing the very same thing. You know, where Clark, it was the same actor and people didn't believe that it was the same actor, but it really was the same actor. He would do one voice as Clark Kent. And then all of a sudden he'd go all deep and then he'd be Superman and totally sell you on the idea of the whole secret identity. And Kevin Conroy, you know, same thing, you know, master of those of those two voices. And with him, what's cool is that it's not so much really like a deepening or, or like a change of, of the structure of his voice so much as it is him going from the loose... From you one know, character to another, yeah. It's well, not... you know, he does Bruce Wayne as very much a, a, a loose, easygoing kind of guy for, you know, just the, the, the playboy to, yeah. you know, the, the stern Batman... So it's not it's not necessarily the Clark Kent thing of going from like a, a geeky pitch to a to a heroic pitch. It's more of a just very loose and easy going to very very dark. I love that. I, that mm-hmm. I mean, how many people could do that 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 successfully? You know, it's great. Considering the number of Batman we've had, not many. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, you know, listen to uh, Adam West. I mean, yeah, I it's the same points. Yeah, I don't think he ever because I can remember an episode as a kid where Commissioner Gordon had Batman and Bruce Wayne on the phone at the same time, and what it was was it was Batman standing there with one phone in one hand and the the red phone in the other hand, talking to Gordon on two different phones. And I remember as young as I was and as gullible and naive as I was, going, "Man, Commissioner he's, Gordon's a dumbass." Yeah, he's not even trying. <laughs> I remember that too. Yeah, he's not. He's not even. You know, yeah. He's not even plugging his nose for Bruce Wayne or anything like that. He's just <laughs> chatting away on two phones. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, brilliant though. Yeah, yeah that that <laughs> that show. You you really had to sort of put your skepticism at the door to. Watch that, or be very young like me that's why I watched it when I was very young so you know I always believed they were going to die at the end of every episode oh I mean I you know I will begrudgingly admit the fact that I ate that show up when I yeah. was a kid but it, it wasn't you know it was when I became older is when I became I don't know I don't know if cynical is the right word but I just became older and looked at it and said wow this is a piece of shit <laughs> which well, is you know in fairness it's really not it's just that it's, it's not a campy yeah it's a campy interpretation is all yeah. and now as an adult you can watch it I guess if you're gonna enjoy it you're gonna enjoy it for that over the topness and for Adam West's hamminess and stuff like that but you know one of the the beautiful things about because for me it's very hard for me to divorce the the series of Batman the animated series from this movie that's why I've talked so much about the series and not oh, yeah. just the film alone because I discovered the series through the film but one of the things I really love about this movie in particular but also the the entire series was that it was very much an amalgam of the best elements of everything Batman. So it was, you know, while I like to call it the definitive version, what it really was, was it was the, all the best pieces make the greatest whole. So, you know, I see a lot of, of tributes and nods and asides and homages to that Adam West show in this show. But they, they took the elements that, that were good, you know, like the detective work and 
the gadgetry and Wayne Manor and his relationship with the commissioner and things like that that really worked and they just didn't touch upon the goofy stuff, you know, the the stuff that that didn't work as well. And and I love that, you know, and, and that tempers very well with the dark side because, you know, it also brought that to the table. It brought Frank Miller's world to the table. But because you've got both of those elements in there, one doesn't overpower the other. So you can have a light, carefree Bruce Wayne, you know, at least his public face. And you could have the dark and brooding Batman that, you know, was was powered by pain in his past and all that without going to one extreme or the other. You didn't have Adam West's or and you didn't have Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight, you you had a, a happy medium, and that's that's all I want. Synthesis. Yeah, exactly. You know, I I don't like extremes when it comes to this character because I think when you do extremes, you lose the other half of the equation. You know, and, and in my case, like Dark Knight, and, and this isn't an attempt to rebash Dark Knight. I'm just simply saying this is why I prefer it to something like Dark Knight is because Dark Knight is one end of the of the spectrum and like Adam West is the complete opposite end of the the spectrum and when you do that one way or the other you you lose the the tempering you know the other side that tempers it uh-huh does right. that make sense sure yeah I see what you mean mm-hmm. it makes yeah. total sense well I think we're ready for another break cool want to come back with uh, favorite moments and nitpicks or something like that sure sounds good Favorite moments and nitpicks coming right up. Sweet. What am I still doing this for? It's got to be one or the other. I can't have it both ways. I can't put myself on the line as long as there's someone waiting for me to come home. Miss Beaumont would be glad to know you feel that way, Master Bruce. She's holding on line one, sir. Master Bruce? Alfred, I can't. Not now. What shall I say, sir? I don't know. I just don't know! doesn't mean I don't care anymore. I don't want to let you down, honest, but... But it just doesn't hurt so bad anymore. You can understand that, can't you? Look, I can give money to the city. They can hire more cops. Let someone else take the risk. But it's different now. Please. I need it to be different now. But I didn't see this coming. I didn't count on being happy. Please, tell me that it's okay. Maybe they already have. Maybe they sent me.
we're back. And this is the final segment of the show. We're just going to uh, quickly, in about the next 20 minutes or so, just kind of cover our uh, our favorite moments of the film, the, the parts that really click for us, uh, those those big geek-out moments, and any uh, any nitpicks that we might have with the movie, you know, things that we, we didn't like or thought could work better or whatever. All right, well, I've got three that really stick in my mind, so I'm probably going to step on people's toes. So be warned. I'm gonna. There's. I'm gonna leave. You know the one big one that I know you want to talk about, Scott. So uh, really, my favorite scenes in this movie are really the, the really silent scenes that just have so much just weight to them. Um, the scene in you know in at the party when Bruce just goes into you know his study and he looks up at the portrait of his parents on the wall. It just like hangs his head and you can just feel, you know, his sadness and you can just feel the whole weight to that scene. You know, even, you know, and we we were talking about, you know, his motivations, you know, back then. But I still think, you know, the death of his parents works as a motivation for him being Batman. And you see, you know, how heavy that weighs on him in that one scene without any dialogue at all. Um, And then also in the flashback scene where... Bruce is pleading with his parents at their grave, you know, because he feels kind of guilty about leaving, you know, this this mission, this plan that he's set up for himself so that he'll, you know, avenge, you know, his parents' deaths. But, you know, he, and I love the, how, you know, Conroy delivers that whole speech and him saying that he never expected that he'd be happy and, you know, how he's just feeling so miserable and then Andrea's there and comforts him. I just love that scene. I, I do too. Yeah, I, I think that that scene is especially tragic because, you know, if, if this one, I'm assuming that this movie is is more or less following the the classic Batman origin to where Batman swore that oath as a child yeah. of what, like nine or ten years old. So, like, you know, that that line, "I never expected to be happy," you know. That that's a callback to when he was young and naive and, and innocent, or actually the loss of his innocence, if it was the death of his parents, and the fact that he never thought, you know, he, he's a prepubescent kid, so he didn't think about girls. You know, he didn't think, well, one day I'm going to fall, in, I might fall in love, and that would, you know, cock the whole thing up. So, yeah, I, I, beautiful scene. You're absolutely right. And that's just the last one I have is when. You know, after, you know, Andrea's left and he's in the cave and he puts on the mask for the first time. That was just absolutely gorgeous. Leanne made it. And just, you know, the reaction by Alfred, which just says, oh my God, I think he says, or my word, or something like that when he sees, you know, Bruce walk past. And we don't see, you know, like the costume. We see him in shadow. Right. As he's walking past. And that was just beautifully done. I like that scene because that's the the main scene in the I mean cuz like I say there was only one or two moments in the entire movie that actually used the Batman the animated series theme and that was the right. one and it's slow and very dark you know when when he puts on that mask it, it almost sounds like uh almost like a funeral dirge you know what I mean it's, I was just going to say a dirge so, yeah, exactly. It really does because you realize that that's 
it's the Luke Skywalker looking at the sun's moment in reverse. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's the dark edge of that because it's, this is where he's setting out on his hero's journey. But for Batman, his hero's journey is taking him to a terrible place, you know? Right. And, and I love it. It, It's the scoring in that, in that scene really more than 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 the art and the direction and the animation the scoring is the make or break in that scene and it just not only makes it but it just puts it right over the top it's just oh it's it's great i really yeah i totally agree with it awesome awesome scene and you know i think that just i i think that they just perfectly were able to interweave you know the flashback scenes detailing you know, how Bruce became Batman with the story, you know, in the present. I think it was just, I don't think that it was, you know, forced at any place. I don't think it was, you know, interrupted the story at any place. I think it was just perfectly weaved, you know, those two stories together. And, you know, Andrea being, you know, the, the tie to all of that. And I think it was just, you know, brilliantly done all around. What about, uh, what about nitpicks? Anything, um, anything jump out and, and really bother you or anything like that with the movie? Uh, well, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> I, I love this movie and I want it to be absolutely perfect. <laughs> but uh, I think that sometimes I think that they played the Phantasm, uh, who I, I still think is one of the coolest designs of a character ever. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I think there, there are times when they play it too supernaturally before we really find out who it is. Mm-hmm. And those are the only, I also uh, kind of miss Gordon, you know, even though he kind of, you know, don't, I don't want any part in this, which was, which was a good scene, but I would have liked to see him come back and just like chew Bullock out. Right. For, you know, taking things too far. I would have liked to, you know, see that. Um, but those are really the only things, and those are things that I can, you know, overlook. I don't think there are any major things that detract from the movie, really. You know, you, you, you brought up something that I totally forgot to mention was that was another thing that won me over seeing this in the theater for the first time was that Harvey Bullock was in it because he was such a mi- minor character from, I mean, I remember his first appearance, you know, that, that was right in my wheelhouse of when I discovered and started reading Batman in the 80s. So to see that character integrated into this universe was, was really cool to me. I really liked that. I just thought that was worth mentioning. I was I was just gonna say that I you know I really like how you know just going into the series how they handled Bullock in the series and you know even though you know you get Bullock as kind of his you know not really you know big on Batman uh, you know type deal in here and how that comes out and how he's you know leading the SWAT team and everything I like how he does you know just like kind of chew out that one rookie who's you know shooting around. You know, the tanks and everything. <laughs> you jerk! Yeah, no, I love that part. <laughs> the one episode I always wished that we would get, and and we never did. You know, I, I want to say that the, the story title might have even been this. I could be totally wrong on this. But there, there's an episode of the animated series called A Bullet for Bullock. Oh, yeah. And I would swear that that's the same story title as this issue that I love from when I was a kid. I, I want to say Pat Broderick might have drawn it, but I could be wrong. But anyway, it was a story where 
you know, Bullock was was still a new character at this point, and he was a character that that people were really, you know, the, the readers were really torn over. You either loved him or you hated him, and he right. was this this bumbling because he was very clumsy in the in the original stories with him. You know, in addition to looking like an unmade bed, you know, he was he was this big fat slob. You know, he was always eating like subs with all the stuff falling out of it and stuff like that. But he was also like super clumsy and klutzy. So he'd come in and like talk to the commissioner and mess up his desk and trash his office and stuff because he was like a bumbling idiot. But this one story, we actually, as the reader, we follow Bullock home and we realize that in a way he almost had like a Clark Kent thing going on because in his own home, he was very fastidious, and we we learned that he's like this classic movie buff, and he had all these like classic movie posters in his apartment and all this memorabilia, and that was his thing. You know, so it was almost like we got to see like the Bullock Cave, if if you know what I mean. Gotcha. And in this story, he had pissed off this this gang of of punks, and while he's out one day they totally fucking trash his apartment and they destroy all of his stuff. And there's a scene where he comes home and uh, along with establishing him as being a klutz and a slob and all that, they'd also established him as being like tough as nails and, and a real ass kicker. And he comes home and for the first time I can remember as a kid, suddenly the character clicked with me because he walked in and he sees his stuff and, and Harvey Bullock just loses it. And there's a scene where he just stands there and tears are streaming down his face. Because I was on the fence with him. I was like, I, I just don't know where they're going with this character. Who is this guy? He's annoying. But when I read that story, it, just, it, 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 it hit me in the heart. I was like, wow, that's awful that they did this. I mean, it, it really took the character hard. And he went out. And instead of going out and finding these guys and beating the piss out of him, which is what you think he's going to do, he actually goes out and, like, I, I can't remember exactly how, but somehow he ends up rounding these guys up and and helps them get their lives together and be, like, like productive. You know what I mean? It, it's almost like a right. like a youth thing, you know, like a, like a youth outreach kind of thing. And it was a really fantastic story. And I wish that they had done that in the, in the animated series, but if you ever, I'll try to find out what issue it is and I'll, I'll post it up on the, you know, our, on our show thread for this episode so people can check it out. But, uh, yeah, really, really fantastic issue. I like Harvey Bullock. I, I really came to Me really too. enjoy that character and I'm glad that they integrated him into, when did, uh, when did he show up? It had to be early '80s, like '83ish, so, something cause, like that. Because he sounds a lot like a character from the Frank Miller Daredevil era, about that same time, called uh, Ben Urick. Yes, Ooh, I don't yeah, know if yeah. he was a cop. I think he was a reporter. He, but he, he was, was reporter, yes. but he was at you know chain smoking, draggled, bedraggled, you know, old raincoat, right? You know, old school, tough as nails, sort of crabby. You're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that. And, you know, I would not be surprised at all if, if it turned out that somehow that, that Bullock owed his existence in some way or other to Ben Yurick. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're absolutely right. Because that, that was shortly, it, to my memory anyway, again, you know, my memory's pretty spotty, but to my memory, he was within probably a year or two 
of that Frank Miller bat, uh, Daredevil stuff. So yeah, you, you could be right. My favorite favorite part is is one of Chris Johnson's is where he's talking to his parents at his grave. Yes. But it's sort of mixed in where she's talking to her parents that I really like that you have the the two different ways that they're talking to, to their parents that like completely is this great just way to do it with one stroke to sort of sum up both of their characters in a in a nutshell and give them something to bond over you know dead dead parents to talk to but you know she talks to her parents as if she's having you know just a sort of she's over for lunch and you know he does the bowed stooped at the grave you know yeah he's very grim about it yes yes and that that was my favorite part of the whole movie the the rest of it was all kind of standard comic book stuff but it was done really well. It was done right, so it worked, you know, because a lot of those elements could be really trite that were in this story if they weren't worked well. But when exactly. they worked well, they, it works great. But that was a sort of element that reminded me of, you know, something you would see in a... I don't want to say an arty movie, but, you know, a more character-driven aimed at an Oscar sort of thing where, you know, where you have the two... Just It was just a very elegant stroke for a cartoon. It was a very elegant adult sort of sophisticated stroke for a cartoon to have that much said about both the characters and also their relationship to each other, you know, affecting their relationship to... So that was, that was my... Favorite. As far as nitpicks go, like, the first time I saw it, I remember I was not too happy with the ending because I felt that it didn't tie anything up or it didn't explain you know there was nothing nothing was sort of solved in it right except you found out who the phantasm was but that didn't resolve the situation and I didn't like that but now upon watching it again now is what that's one of the things I really like about it is it does it give you a cut and dried you know Bruce doesn't have to buckle down and bring her, you know, I'm bringing you in, you know, type of thing, you know, he doesn't have to put her into, he doesn't put her into Arkham Asylum at the, at the end of it, which is probably where she would have ended up, you know? Right. And you don't know if, and, and when you start thinking about it, you don't know if he really wanted to or would have, but he, he sort of isn't given the option in this, but it, it doesn't feel like a cop-out, it just feels, it's, it's... It's very. It, it leaves it off like real life might leave off, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're assuming at the end of this that the police still think that he's murdered all the people that the phantasm killed. <laughs> yeah, that's actually my. I, I really only have a couple, but that's that's probably my biggest one. Is that again that more? In fairness, that really owes more to Batman Returns because that really bothers me every time I watch that movie. But yeah, wa- rewatching it this time, it actually occurred to me. I was like. Yeah, you know, at the end of this one, he'd still be kind of a wanted man, wouldn't he? I mean, he never, he doesn't really have the ability to clear himself. He hasn't really cleared his name at all. No, as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, it's gotten a little harder to clear his name because the phantasm's gone. So yep. there's nobody to pin it on anymore. Or he could, it's, you know, save for the Joker, she's killed everybody that knew anything about anything the about what was going on. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
I like it. It's very. Un- it leaves it open, and it, you know, it leaves it open for further stuff. But it doesn't tie it up. And that's that's the thing. Is everybody? I don't know if that's what they're teaching the writers in film school completely. But you know, everybody feels the need to have everything tied up, right? In a nice little bow at the end of movies, or else, and the characters to have learned something important. And all that, and the characters do learn important things in this, but they're pretty harsh. <laughs> right? Yeah, they're pretty harsh lessons, and you know they don't come out of it necessarily stronger for it, just different. <laughs> Which is not usually how you find a cartoon movie ending. So I was impressed by that. I like the way it ends, though. Yeah, that, I do too. That, yeah. You know, that it ends open-ended because yeah. for one thing it leaves it to where she could possibly come back you know which which she yeah. does you know we'll, we'll touch on that in a moment but uh yeah I mean really I mean I, I really can't find much fault in this movie anywhere I mean really again watching this again you know very recently the only other I don't even know if you could call it a major nitpick but the only nitpick i could really find in it was uh it's always bothered me a little bit the scene where she's being sucked into the the jet engine by the joker uh-huh mm-hmm. and batman shows up on his bat cycle right from the very first time i watched the movie it, it struck me that wait a minute not only is he coming in at like exactly the right moment but it's never explained how he found either of them you know, uh, Andrea or the Joker. I mean, because the last scene we see with Batman prior to this part was where he realized who the guy in the picture was, that that it was the Joker before he had become the Joker. And then we cut to scenes with the Joker and Andrea. So how did Batman find them? I mean, I've never been clear on that. I don't know how he wound up at the the Joker's lair. I mean, if he knew all this time where the Joker was, why hadn't he come after him before this point? I I, I, I don't. I've never been able to find where that's made clear. Maybe, maybe the novelization would clear it up. Strangely, I've never read. I, I have it and have never read it. I need to do that. Hmm. I'll report back on that one day. <laughs> I'll read the book and maybe the book will tell how he found them. But yeah, maybe he's got a bad tracking device on it. Could be, yeah, yeah, that's true. Maybe he did slap a uh, a bat tracer on her or something. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. It sure took him a hell of a long time to get there, though, if he, he did. He just wanted to time it just right. <laughs> yeah, that's it. He wanted to make a dramatic entrance. But uh, Well, I wanted to get my nitpick out of the way first because, uh, you know, like I say, I, I have extreme difficulty finding any fault with this movie. But uh, right. if you'll allow me getting maudlin for just a minute, my, my, favorite, mo- my favorite moment really would would have to chalk up to the entirety of the love story. I mean, it's hard for me to, to pick a, a favorite moment. And I thought you, know, you were going to go with the, the scene at the construction site. Well, I mean, yeah, that that's my favorite like action moment of the entire okay. movie. Cause you know, Batman to me, you know, that that's another thing that I find missing from the live action interpretations. I, I never feel like, you know, there's some great action moments in there, but there was never one that like, you know, like Superman Returns, for example, love it or hate it, when he catches the airplane, that's like the holy shit moment of the movie. It's awesome. I mean, despite the rest of the movie, Superman landing that airplane is great. It's awesome. 
And this is kind of that moment in the movie is, is the Batman construction moment is like the awesome action part of the movie, you know. But beyond that, you know, it's it's made up of a lot of little moments through the movie. I love the moment right after. Um, well, basically, the, the entire scene of, of Bruce proposing to Andrea, but especially mm-hmm. when the bats come surging up out of the ground, because to me. That actually was a bit of a tweak, at least in my mind, to the classic origin of where he's sitting, you know, in his chair trying to think up what identity is he going to take. And the bat comes crashing through the window and he said, oh, you know, I shall become a bat. To me, you no longer need that scene because Bruce had his bat moment, you know what I mean, with Andrea, which makes it that much more poignant that they're both sitting there in each other's arms, scared shitless by this wave of bats that come out. So I saw that very much as the replacement for for that you know I shall become a bat scene. I love that. I th- I think that's pretty much so. Yeah, really, really awesome. But then the continuation of that scene, you know, he's discovering the bat cave and and what you know what will eventually become his bat cave and everything. But he's still very light about it. You know, he's he's not in Batman mode, so he's not discovering it as you know, someone who's setting out on that mission, he's, he's almost discovering it out of curiosity. And that's the exact moment when Alfred delivers the bad news, you know, that, that she's rejected, you know, his marriage proposal and run off. And, and that scene of too young, you know, leaving with dad, forget about me. And just Kevin Conroy's delivery of him reading that. And when he says, you forget about me and he's crushed and right. you know, the camera pulls back and the music is very sad and then it shifts to that moment deep in the bat cave you know we, we presume weeks or months later when he's putting on the cowl for the first time and the music darkens and goes into the theme you know it, that to me all ties back to the love story and that's why I said you know forgive me for being maudlin you know I, I might not ever make this impression on people that have listened to all of our episodes but I am in my heart a, a hopeless romantic I, I love a good love story but I'm also a little bit twisted because I love a, a good tragic love story there's something about that like a, like a classic Greek tragedy or something or like a like a Romeo and Juliet type of thing that really gets me where I live, you know? And this movie does that to me. The the love story in this. Plus, you know, in, in fairness, I you know, I have to reveal that this this watching this movie took place for me at a time in my life where this very thing had just happened. And so that element of the story was like, wow, you know, bang, right in the heart. So every time I watch this movie, I, I get just a a retwinge of that. You know what I mean? It really seems very realistic to me because I was kind of living that element myself. So I totally bought it, you know, his heartache for that lost love and that lost relationship is so real and so palpable in that movie. I think that's a lot of why it works so well for me and why, why I really enjoy it. And because it could have, you know, as you guys said, it could have come off totally, flat or totally cheesy or or you know whatever it, it could have been a spectacular failure 
in that aspect of the story because most superhero movies or, or comic book movies, the love story is the well, lamest ass part of the entire well, show. Well, let's it's face it, it's even it's even harder to pull off a romantic story in a cartoon. <laughs> Absolutely, you know? Absolutely, you know, without coming off as as you know really cliche or really sugary or really you know prince charming or something yeah absolutely and this is you know right up there with you know the the best live action love story you know chick flick to me you know it it really works that well and i i think that that's really it's a it's a compliment to everybody involved you know to the to the writers to the director but most especially to uh to Conroy and uh, and Delaney for for really I think their their chemistry really comes through, and yeah. I I know it does because you know years later, um when we would get the uh, um was it in the Batman Superman movie where Batman oh, and World's Lois finest. Um, yeah World's Finest World's where, finest. Bat, where no. Batman and, and Lois Lane fall, well actually it was Bruce Wayne and, and Lois Lane fall in love, but Lois Lane was played by Dana Delaney and again. That chemistry really comes through with them just through their voice performances. So yeah, I, I totally give it give it credit with them. You know, I, I really enjoyed that. And I almost I sometimes I wonder was that done because they wanted to add a twist to the Batman, you know, Superman relationship by by making Lois part of a love triangle with them or was it done as an homage back to this movie because Dana Delaney played both parts I'd really love to know that you know that I, I think I'd it's like... probably both yeah since, that's true <laughs> since she had since they saw that you know they had such chemistry in Mask of the Phantasm they probably you know decided to put them together again because they had such great chemistry that's a good point that's a good point yeah they, they worked really well both times really well both times and it's actually a, a, a little bit of a, although the, the the end of the relationship with Lois Lane was a, a little more equitable than it was, well, a lot more equitable than it was with uh, with Andrea Beaumont. It still had had strong parallels both times. You know that you you felt like Bruce was you know felt a, a real loss. You know, with the end of his relationship with Lois, the same way he did with the end of his relationship with uh, with Andrea. So poor bastard just can't catch a break. Is the is the bottom line? Hey, <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, so, you yeah. can't you can't let him catch a break. It'll ruin his character. Yep, it's true. True, so he's doomed. True. Well, I think I that think... that about wraps it up, don't you think? I do. I've got a, I've got a couple more things. First, because I think you know. Somebody's got to mention it, and I think, I guess all, because we didn't bring it up. Um, I'm pretty sure that uh, Clark and Andrea, uh, they were doing a little bit more than kissing at uh, one point in the movie. Bruce, you mean? And Andrea. Yeah, you said Clark, but <laughs> I thought you uh, meant Bruce. Oh, I said Clark? Crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, see, we're talking about World's Finest, and I'm conflicting my movies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, they were totally doing it, man. Yeah, that was another, that was, yeah, now that you say that, that was another reason why why I told parents when when I was, you know, when I had to sell this to people, that was another aspect was, uh, I thought that it was very adult- in the way it treated relate, you know, their relationship too. Cause yeah, totally. They yeah. were totally scrumping, man. 
Absolutely. Well, they they had the they had the Captain Kirk scene, you know, where mm-hmm. you know there's, there's that classic episode where where Kirk and the girl are kissing when they go to commercial, and then they come back from commercial, and you know Kirk's pulling his boots back on, you know, and there was a scene just like that in this, you know, where they they're kissing and it like I think the camera panned or something, and then when it comes back, you know, she's she's standing there in nothing but his shirt, you know, right. something something like that. So yeah, absolutely. Which I just think adds to, you know, the adult approach that this movie took, which people probably weren't expecting it to take. Mm-hmm. I know I wasn't. You know, I mean, I yeah. know going into it, I totally thought this was just going to be a, a, a goofy cartoon, you know? Right. And that, you know, th- yeah, things like that totally blew me away that, wow, you know, this this was a Batman for, for grownups. Exactly. And uh, just the other thing, uh, what do you think... You know, kind of, you know, versus here. What do you think about the Joker as a mobster origin versus, you know, how he's portrayed in the comics origin-wise? Actually, now that you say that, that that was a bit of a nitpick that I forgot to bring up. That it doesn't bother me horribly, but it bothers me in the fact that somebody, although by the end of this movie they're dead, but that somebody may have actually known who the Joker was. And actually, now that I think about it, in, in the animated series, they don't they actually call him Jack Napier at least, I think at least one time. May, you see it may, on a file at one yeah, time. That's it. Yeah, Jack that's, Napier, yeah. That's what it was, yeah. And that bugs me because I think the Joker works best when he's the complete enigma. That right. he, he popped up as, what was it, the Red Hood. You know, mm-hmm. that, that accident happened to him. And he's very much like, uh, you know, like a phantom stranger story where he can have dozens of origins, likely none of which are true. You know, I, I like that with him. And, and this, you know, kind of opens the doorway to the fact that, you know, those guys, well, like when, when, uh, when Abe Vigoda comes to see him. I, you know, he never calls him by any name but Joker, but I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, Joker worked for him under his, you know, other identity before he became Jokerfied. So this guy probably knew him, probably knew his name and his backstory and the whole nine yards. And yeah, I, I don't know. Like I say, it's not a tremendous nitpick, but yeah, it, do, it does bug me a little bit because I like the uh, enigmatic Joker. Right. That just just seemed to just kind of pop into existence out of whole cloth, simply to be the foil for Batman. I I, I think that's cool. It almost gives him a supernatural element. Right. Like, like he was created simply because of Batman. I, I love that. I, I think that's that's really cool. But also, you know, something I totally forgot to mention was uh, one of my absolute favorite scenes is when Reeves slams down the phone in frustration right after the big uh, Batman hunt sequence. And Joker comes in, and he comes in in, like, quick flashes to where first he's in the doorway in silhouette, and then suddenly within, like, three or four flashes and camera moves, he's right in your face. And the way he acts in that entire scene, right from the first time I saw this, reminded me of the head meanie in Yellow Submarine. Oh, yes. (laughs) 
I, I've always wondered if that was a direct homage. Well, he... I I think um, I I think his vocal work in that did owe a bit to the head meaning too. You know, I think he he used a little bit of it. Or if yeah. you didn't, there's there's a little bit to to Mark Hamill's Joker delivery of of the blue meanie, which is awesome. I love the blue meanie so. I could never imitate the way he does the line. Maybe maybe I'll dub it in here, but there's there's the thing where he says uh, something about, you know, if certain things were revealed about his past. And the way he says it is the same way that that, that meme yes. delivers a couple of his Go same – glove. Like, yeah, exactly. I was just going to say that same line. When he's talking to the glove, he, ta- yeah. he talks in exactly that same tone of voice. So, yeah. Glove. I'm here, glove. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. An important, upstanding guy like you could find it awkward if certain secrets were revealed about his past. Come here, Glove. Look out there, and what do you see? Tell him, Max. Someone running, Glove. Yes. Well, you'll soon put a stop to that, won't you, Glovey? Go, Glove. Point and having pointed. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that movie. That's another one I watched like a million times. You don't hear it too much on the show, but Scott and I are also two true Beatles freaks too. So we we love our Beatles stuff. So, so how does that pertain to Batman the Phantasm? It doesn't, but I'm going to bring it back to say um, two things real quick. The Phantasm came back in animated form in the episode, um, oh shit, what was the name of it? Epilogue. It was Epilogue. 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 Great, great, great episode of oh, um, yeah. Justice League Unlimited. I, I loved that because it was an epilogue. You know, the title was so fitting. It, it, it was, you know, you could take it so many ways. It was a, it was an epilogue to Batman Beyond. It was an episode, it was an epilogue to the Batman story. It was an epilogue to a lot of things. The DCAU, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really was. But what was cool in that is, you know, the, the Phantasm has just a brief cameo. But it's a very important cameo where you learn that she's still involved in Bruce Wayne's life all these years later and that she actually plays something of a role or actually well I won't I won't spoil it for you but she she plays something of a role in the life of Bat, the future Batman the Batman beyond Batman so it, yeah Very definitely worth a look um, she never says anything so it wasn't it wasn't Dana Delaney you know replaying the character or anything but uh but definitely worth a look and Please tune in later this week when we will be discussing an actual sequel to this film, Batman, uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm. There was a sequel that was entitled Shadow of the Phantasm. This appeared in Batman and Robin Adventures Annual Number 1. Fantastic story, and uh, we'll be uh, all three of us will be returning to discuss that in this week's episode of Back to the Bin. So look for that out on Wednesday, and uh, we'll have that ready for you. I think that's it, fellas. What else we got? Um, just the Batman Mask of the Phantasm. If you have not seen it yet, uh, it's an amazing film. Um, if you just uh, dismiss it because it's animated, 
Uh, I truly believe that it is the best Batman film that's come out. Anime, nice. live action, it doesn't matter. I think it's the best. So, and that's my own humble opinion, you know. <laughs> so uh, just <laughs> take it as that. Uh, but still, seriously, if you haven't seen it yet, you know, pick. You can get a DVD for five bucks off Amazon. You know, you don't have any excuse. Just pick it up, watch it. It's just a fantastic movie. Well, you know, you you and I are good friends. But we see so very differently on so many things, you know, especially like Dark, <laughs> Dark Knight and yeah. Arkham Asylum and things like that. But I love it that you and I see so very much alike on this movie. And it really makes me feel great that, that you love this one just as much as I do. Because it really, you're absolutely right. It is the best Batman that, you know, film that we ever got. It's fantastic. And I, I, I just, I pray to God that one day there will be a live action film half as good as this one is. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email Two True Freaks directly at Two True Freaks at gmail dot com. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. We are now also members of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check it out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. Thanks for listening to Two True Freaks. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Core of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day 
There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away 